Welcome to Guys Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. How are you doing today, John? I haven't talked to you in a long, long time. Yeah, I'm doing great. That's uh, fantastic. It's summer, everything's warm and nice. A, a little bit too up. warm. I had some pops, uh, sodas, explode in my garage. It was too hot. <laughs> too yeah, hot. I, it's like I've never heard of a too hot explosion. No, I know it. Cold, it also yeah. always used to be too cold, too hot. It's terrible. <laughs> and so now I have to store all my my apocalypse coke supplies in the basement. Is what I have to do. I thought you have a bunker by now. Yeah, it's, it's basement. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but. Uh, we're here today to review a debate uh, between Chris Date and Will Duffy. And we're just going to focus on the Chris Date part uh, because this debate is called Does Open Theism, I'll add it to the stream, Does Open Theism Best Explain the Biblical Data? Okay, so um, I want you to be like a neutral party, kind of give us, if you're going to make the case that open theism doesn't best explain the biblical data, what kind of case would you present what kind of arguments would you make what would be the strategy for your opening round for my opening round I don't yeah know, i guess um I'd, I'd try to point out instances of prophecy and foreknowledge maybe how that how that explains that um there there's some sort of either foresight or control point out how god always makes these verses about how he he will finalize and, and win in the end and that like there's nothing that surprises him nothing that catches him off guard things like that okay so what i'm hearing is that you would try to grab some data and put that data together and systematize it and say okay. open theism <laughs> okay <laughs> doesn't explain this data very well and wow. perhaps there's a better solution to this pattern of data that we're seeing is this different model? I already see the problem. <laughs> he doesn't bring up data at all. Well, well, yeah, uh, uh, the the problem is going to be very glaring pretty quickly. He just starts arguing against random open theists that he found in books. Like, I, I don't like this guy's reading of this verse. Uh, but you'll see that. Uh, so that is actually what I would expect. If you're going to make the case that open theism th does it best explain the biblical data, you're not just going to be attacking random open theists who you're not debating with and saying those open theists yeah. don't have good readings of certain verses because there's other open theists who also read those verses in different ways. It's not like defeating one open theist like defeats all of open theism or means open yeah. theism isn't the best way to read the biblical data. It's a very so, weird debate. Just for clarification, whoever put the title of the debate, that was what they said the debate was about going right. into it. Yeah, Will Duffy is smart enough to understand that we make the debate about the Bible and not about <laughs> something okay. stupid. And so uh, th these debates are titled in the ways that they are for specific reasons. Uh, so it's it's pretty fantastic. So we'll right. listen to Chris Date, Calvinist, Calvinist Chris Date, Annihilationist Chris Date, and he's going to tell us all about uh, why open theism, if it doesn't explain the biblical data best. All right, Chris. Uh, well, we'll get started with your. Opening. That's about as loud um, as it gets on Just my fine. end. I can hear it fine. Well, I can't hear anything. Open now. Theism best explains the. Yeah, he was muted. Indeed, I think it cannot do so. And the case I'm going to make will consist of three planks. Firstly, open theists' interpretations of open theistic proof texts are self-defeating. 
Number two, so what open theism the does there. can solve our problems that open theism itself introduces. And number three, open... Yeah, apparently he did a debate review of this, and Will Duffy's like, half of it's about you, Chris, so not me. It's like, uh, <laughs> well, I don't actually plan on watching it, so um, if they, they make any real points, uh, someone else is going to have to bring that to my attention. Because yeah. uh, he brings an insufferable guest on to talk, so... I think I think that's actually what happened. So Chris Day is friends with Tyler Vela, and Tyler Vela had a debate with Will Duffy, and Tyler Vela in his like his open theism biblical, his entire debate was just attacking random open theists' readings of various proof texts, and not at all dealing with Will Duffy again. So I think this is their weird strategy in their mind that they think that. They could just grab random open theists and attack them, and that's somehow a case okay. against open theists. So, so first of all, the title of this debate seems to indicate that you need to begin with the open theist, right? So they're not even doing that. Like, the open theist has the positive case. Yeah, Will Duffy made his case, case, but he doesn't respond uh, to Will Duffy's case. Okay. No, 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 no. Uh, these people, when they go into the, these debates... They think that their opening cases are standalone, irrelevant and irrespective of anything. The the first well, there the, is a there is a formal debate setting where you do do that, right? But it doesn't make sense if someone's building the case for why open theism yeah. is the best biblical way to read the Bible, and uh, then you're trying to respond to that case and trying to make a counter case. So either you build a counter case, or you respond to your opponent's opening which he, he does neither. And we'll, we'll kind of look at the ways that he, he goes through these various points. Theism struggles to explain the fulfillment of past-directed prayers. So let's dig into these one by one. Firstly, open theism is self-defeating. Um, I'm leaning heavily upon the work of Tyler Vela, whom I <laughs> admired in his debate a couple of years ago with my opponent. He drew out very well during cross-examination what I'm going to demonstrate here. Firstly, the open theist's reading of... So I don't know if you know anything about my interactions with Tyler Vela. Um, my first interactions with this individual is uh, someone brought me into a chat talking about Servetus, Servetus and John Calvin's murdering of him. And I laid out like 12 different points uh, talking about John Calvin's culpability. And Tyler Vela is like, oh, uh, that's, you have to look at the cultural context. It's, and, and what you're saying is wrong. He, he didn't kill him. I'm like, which one of my 12 points are wrong? And he was just, he was like, uh, just ignoring all my points and just saying, oh, you're wrong and I'm right. And there's cultural context. It's like John Calvin admits to doing it. But so that's my first interaction with this individual, incredibly dishonest. And this is this guy's like best friend that he's drawing off. So already not a good start. Did not enter my mind is uh, something that contradicts their own admission that God knows all possibilities. So in Jeremiah 19, 5, God says he observes that his people have been sacrificing their children in fire to false gods. And he says it didn't even come into my mind. Uh, open theist Greg Boyd. Okay, so that, let's let's take a look at this point. So he says, this is an open theist proof text. Okay, I, I guess yeah, okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to use Greg Boyd, and Greg Boyd is now a standard bearer for open theist, all open theist positions, and then fighting this one statement of Greg Boyd apparently means open theism is not the best way. It's a, it's a really shoddy case right, right off the bat. 
Blade says that the most straightforward reading of this text is that it never even occurred to him that they might do that. But then as a reasonable theologian, he goes on to say, well, of course the Lord knew that it was possible because God knows all possibilities. Well, hold on a second. Either this allegedly most straightforward reading is correct or God knew it was in fact possible. Open theists don't get to have it both ways. Well, okay. So let's 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 talk about just how language works in general. And so I was reading Josephus just yesterday, and Josephus is talking about the flood, and he says, uh, "Yeah, God decided to save one man, Noah. I, I destroyed everything else." And in the very next paragraph, he talks about God saving Noah and Noah's families and their children. So. Is that a contradiction? Is Josephus contradicting himself, or is that kind of like a normal way that language might function? Yeah, it's, it's normal based on the context, right? Noah, it's of course Noah and his family, right? Yeah, so it, it in fact could be both ways if the language is being used like that. Yeah. That, um, yeah, this this is so egregious that God is saying this this never entered my mind that you'd absolutely do that, even though. There might have been an instance in the past in which it did enter his mind because he's trying to read written works as if they're technical manuals. Maybe they're manuals of mathematics and calculus where everything is uh, very concrete and defined and you can just plug formulas into each other. And so if Josephus one place says only one man was saved from the flood and another place he says all these people were also saved from the flood, either in the Chris Dates way of reading language, that's either a contradiction or he has to find some sort of cope mechanism, some sort of way to to uh, salvage that. Like, well, technically they're all one family, and so family is the blood of each other, so technically it was... So I think it's just the normal way language works. Noah's the guy being saved. His his family's incidental, so it's it's okay to say that there's only one man saved from the flood that it's yeah it's just just the way language works I mean, just a lot of the way these theological debates happen in the first places one set of people gets a bunch of proof text together to say oh these these verses are why it, you absolutely have to believe this and the other tries to get a bunch of gotcha verses and and they'll also do gotcha like commentary to do it like they're not trying to have a broader discussion in the first place they're just trying to pick and choose little snippets that they can use to throw at you right it's kind of like how uh, politicians are always worried about getting sound bites thrown at them this seems like the same thing it's like you're just going to have a sound bite rather than trying to understand you know like the breadth of human language in the first place yeah so let's let's say i was doing um does is calvinism biblical and i just start grabbing like the worst examples of calvinist exegesis on verses yeah that I could find and I threw that into my opening. That's not actually an argument because I'm not actually arguing that Calvinism as a whole is uh, irredeemable. There's other open theists who have other opinions on these verses. He's not considering that and he's trying to take build strawman. Well, but it, it's very effective and this is why you always have to pay attention to the difference between rhetoric and dialectic. Rhetor rhetorically, this tends to be very effective because if you're trying to win an argument through rhetoric, what you do is you just sort of try to humiliate and embarrass your opposite opposition, make them feel like they're they're not worth paying attention to in the first place. Uh, and so it's not really about the argument in, to begin with. So 
this seems to me to be a rhetorical strategy to just say, oh, these people are, are inconsistent and they don't know what they're talking about. I think this is stemming from um, his, him overestimating his own IQ. He thinks like this is a, a genius strategy for an intelligent... I, I think he honestly believes that this is an intelligent strategy for making an intelligent scholarly case. I, I, I honestly believe he's not being dishonest and he's not being a fraud in this. I, yeah, and I don't mean to say that he's deliberately choosing rhetoric. I, rhetoric tends to be the way people instinctually think, which is why it is rhetoric in the first place. It's effective at, at communicating because it communicates kind of through feelings and impressions. So I, I don't mean to say that he, he knows what he's doing and he's being seedy about it. Mm -hmm. Now, my opponent tries not to have it both ways, and he bites the bullet. On his website, he says that this is an example of a text that says God didn't know it was even plausible that his people might do that. But of course, we know that that's false. God clearly did know it's plausible because he commanded Israel not to do it back in Leviticus 18.23, Deuteronomy 18.10, and other texts. So the open theist interpretation of Jeremiah 19.5 and the two other... Uh, so I'm reminded of a debate between John Sanders and James White. And uh, James White, he like attacks... He, he read John Sanders' book, and he's talking about Psalms 139. And in, in John Sanders' book, John Sanders lists out like five different ways, five different variants of open theist readings on this one text... And James White in the debate is like, oh, you said this in your book. And he he, re, he refutes one of those ways and just like calls it good. It, it's, it's problematic. You're not actually, you're not actually not showing that open theism is not a good way to read that verse. You're just t attacking one of the various possible ways to read that text in an open theist light. You're not attacking open theism as a whole. Right. And that's, that's absolutely what's going on here comparable text in Jeremiah, is self-defeating. And there's a simpler, better explanation for it. Namely, God didn't even think to command them to do this. Uh, he's a Calvinist. <laughs> Secondly, the open theist reading of See If They Have Done contradicts their own admission that God perfectly knows the past. So in Genesis 18, 20, and 21... Yeah, did, open, did Will Duffy claim that God perfectly knows the past? He didn't. And there's, there's open theists who don't believe that God perfectly knows the past. He, he's attacking a certain brand of open theism rather than open theism as a whole. And so this is actually really funny. He's going to sit here and argue that the more extreme version of open theism is be better and more true to the text. Well, In that, a debate... That tells me what they're doing. It, it, like Because they're so used to gatekeeping and preventing talking to anyone who's even more radical than, say, Boyd, like, all they really know how to do is attack someone like Boyd. It doesn't enter their mind that Will Duffy might disagree or, or be a little bit more radical in his thinking, right? He doesn't pay attention to Duffy in the first place. It's not like he's ever going to read anything Duffy writes. He doesn't care. Because, like, the people he's worried about are are the people just sort of slightly open theist who have big churches like Boyd or um like or had a following for a while like John Sanders. He's not worried about you know you until you, unless you become big enough that it'll have to care. 
Well, he's he's a little bit worried about me. I think a lot of his talking was about me. And uh, there's some fallout from this debate in which uh, he claimed that a phrase used of God was not used as of man, like I claimed in the comments and in the questions. And it was a laughable claim. And if you pulled up, uh, we'll, we'll get to it eventually. Okay, okay. we'll get to it. But uh, um, it's really funny. I, I think he might have felt a little bit humbled by that. Um, God, in a theophany, says he's going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see whether what they have done matches up with what he has been told they have done. And my opponent on his website says that this is an example of a text in which God the Son, in an anticipation of the Incarnation, empties himself of knowledge. But nothing in the text suggests that this is an Incarnation-like self-emptying. This is a purely ad hoc attempt to avoid contradicting Scripture elsewhere. Scripture that open, uh, open theist Clark Pinnock acknowledges proves that God didn't need to travel to Sodom to find out about it. He cites Jeremiah 7, uh, 23, 24 as proof. See, oh, oh, uh, Clark Pinnock is reasonable, and he recognizes that the open view of God risks being uh, you, taking uh, metaphors and figures. Clark Pinnock's reasonable, and uh, he, he disavows this more extreme open theism in which God doesn't know past events. Therefore, open theism doesn't best explain the biblical data. Like he's only saying Clark Pinnock is reasonable in this particular example. He probably would disagree that Clark Pinnock is reasonable in general, right? Right. It it, it kind of like a cherry pick thing, yeah. cherry picking thing. Fellow open theists, not to do that. Evidently, my opponent disagrees, and that's fine. Um, but the problem gets worse because the the knowledge here that God purports to go and ac uh, accumulate is not knowledge of the past, or sorry, not merely merely knowledge of the present. It's also knowledge of the past. Have done, he says, he will go down to see. And open theist Greg Boyd says that it's precisely God's perfect knowledge of the past and present that enables him to predict in Jesus that Peter will deny him three times. So open theism affirms that God has perfect knowledge of the past and present in order to explain divine predictions elsewhere, but then they must deny that God has perfect knowledge of the past and present in order to make Genesis 18:21 evident. That's a lie, Chris State. Um, so there's there's open theists. If if someone believes that God doesn't have some knowledge of the past, they're an open theist. And so he's saying all open theists must have this particular definition of omniscience and specific. Um, understanding of how God relates to past and present. Um, it's just it's just him making fabulous uh, a fable type claims. Uh, he's just making it up. And so he, he's just he's he's literally just arguing that the Bible, I, I, I think he says a little bit later, but if taken literally argues for a more extreme version of open theism. and and the verses there, yeah, could and probably, are describing God going down to verify past reports which have come to him to see if those reports are true. Um, but also the text can be read and has been read um, by Jewish scholarship, for example, or the the, the Talmud and uh, or the um, Jewish commentaries. Uh, they, they talk about how this is God going to test them to see if they continue in the ways of the past. So it's, it's still God gaining information, but yeah. going to... Go to, going to try it out to see if they continue. And that is a valid reading, and that's that's the reading uh, Craig Fisher takes, and uh, it's not the reading I take. I, I do think it's going to verify past reports, which kind of looks like what's going on here. 
Josephus doesn't read it this way. Josephus sees it as like a future test and God knows the present circumstance in Sodom. I was just reading that yesterday as, as we talked about. And so th there's a wide diversity of uh, ways to take this. But a lot of, lot of ways to take this text are open theistic and you can't just attack one of them and then expect the whole house of cards to collapse for open theism it's self-defeating there's a simpler better explanation this is simply a didactic anthropomorphism meant to demonstrate god's just character to readers and to abraham even at the very time so when he says the words didactic anthropomorphism what is that flag in your mind what, what do you think he's trying to say um i mean just 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 deconstructing the words it's like you use metaphor to teach something that's what it, I think that's what he's getting at with that. It's uh, the Bible is describing this in a specific way to teach some sort of principle, unnamed principle. He's not telling us what principle it's teaching, but it's it's it like can't be taken seriously. It can't be taken literally, even though this is a long narrative in which this is a key element that explains a dialogue and interaction and character motivations, even though it does all of that. All of that just needs to be rejected in favor of his unnamed theology. He was talking about how Will Duffy has a statement, and that's actually Bob Enyard's statement. Yeah. Uh, he has a statement about things that aren't explicit in the text. His stuff is not explicitly in the text. He's a hypocrite when it comes to this. He's criticizing Will Duffy for something he himself is doing. And then he's admitting that the face reading of the text is extreme open theism. Yeah. And which, which is the opposite of uh, arguing that does open theism best explain the biblical data taking the negative position? He's actually arguing that extreme open theism is the best reading. I, I do, Thirdly, open oh. theistic readings of... I, I do notice that like he's, he's got himself kind of in a corner because like people more, I, I guess you'd say, left-wing or liberal in their interpretation of Genesis will just say the entire narrative is didactic, right? Like you shouldn't be treating the whole thing as though it happened. It's just meant to, to teach you something. But he can't do that. He has to say this really happened, except for whenever the the, the text is not convenient for him. Yeah. <laughs> now I know that you fear contradicts their own admission that God knows men's hearts. Here in Genesis 22, 11 and 12, just before Isaac brings his knife down, sorry, Abraham brings his knife down to kill Isaac, God stops him and says, now I know that you fear God. And both Clark Pinnock and my opponent see this text as evidence that God was testing Abraham to see what he would do. But the text says nothing about God learning what he would do. Nothing says God sought. Yeah, Josephus's position on this is that God was testing Abraham to see if God's past promises to Abraham were worth giving him. And once he fulfilled the text, Josephus says, and then he gave him all these other blessings for, for, for fulfilling this test and passing this test. And so um, Chris Date's position here, we'll let him, we'll let him finish it out. To, to learn what Abraham would do. Rather, it says that God learned the state of Abraham's heart, taken at face value. The fact that Abraham fears God. But as open theist Greg Boyd acknowledges, when a person has decided something in his heart, when he's resolved in his heart, um, God knows what he will do because God perfectly knows one's heart. Similarly, Clark Pinnock points to Psalm 139, 2 and 23 as proof that God has thorough knowledge of our inner thoughts and feelings. He doesn't need to go see it or have it proven to him. 
he's like, uh, this this verse um, it, it suggests that God is testing our hearts. And here's some open theists countering the verse. I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what he's going on. What's going on here? What, what he's what he's getting at? Are, are you tracking his argument? As far as I know, it, it, it's just that he doesn't have a dialogue going on. So he's like scrounging for a dialogue to make his case. Yeah, I don't think he interacts really with open theists. And yeah. so it's he's just like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if anything sticks. And so there's mechanisms in the Bible as to how God knows hearts. And if you read Psalms 139, um, it, it starts with King David saying, you have searched me and known me. And it ends with King David saying, search my heart and see if there's any evil in me. And so the mechanism by which God has knowledge of the heart Throughout the Bible, when it is described, the mechanism by which God knows the heart, it's it's testing. God tests to know. And Chris Date thinks this is going to be a contradiction because he views the world as like complete sets of data. Like your your heart has a blueprint. Like it's a and, computer program. Yeah, it's a computer program. So you could actually run mental simulations of everything in your in, in God's mind all different inputs in all scenarios and see the exact output in all scenarios. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think any of the biblical authors thought like that. Like, like zero of them thought that that's how these things work. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a modern, a modern uh, digital world invention. So, so you, you've seen this whole debate. Is that true? Uh, I, I, I skipped out at the end, huh. which um, I, I was showing my kids this debate. And I, we're, we're talking through the debate as it's going on. So it's just getting pretty long for them. So, and, uh, I, I mean, the reason I'm asking is just like, it seems like in his um, level of understanding of open theism, it would be much better to not even have a formal debate and actually just sit down and talk to people. Um, was this debate format even productive? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, Will Duffy probably considers this a win. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't actually listened to Chris Date's review, debate reviews that he did, and I don't plan on it, and so I don't know if he considers it a win, but Will definitely definitely does. Yeah. So open theists affirm that God knows men's thoughts and hearts, but then they have to deny that very thing in order to make Genesis 22.12 evidence for open theism. It's self-defeating. There's a simpler, better explanation for this text, namely, it's a didactic anthropomorphism proving that Abraham is faithful, both to Abraham and to subsequent re He says, uh, open theists, uh, it's like he's never conversed with an open theist on this and, and learned how God knows hearts. And so he attacks kind of like a straw man that he kind of fabricated. And he's, he's saying the verse should actually be read, now you know that you fear God. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, this is just another teaching moment for mankind that doesn't actually mean what it says. It's better to read this verse as not meaning what it, what it says on the face value yeah. and have this secret other system that I kind of came up with based on my understanding about how God operates and behaves. It's, it's a very weird argument. Will Duffy doesn't press him on this. He doesn't say, listen, you didn't actually, the, the debate here is about, oh, does open theism best explain the biblical data? You sat there throughout your entire opening speech and said that we should just ignore the text, consider everything, anthropomorphisms, dismiss everything, and then uh, just just have the secret other theology that's not explicit in any of these texts, any of these scenarios, based on the scattering of proof texts taken out of the context that mean nothing what you're claiming. 
this this is the way you read the Bible. This is a terrible way to read the Bible. The better way to read the Bible is authorial intent. Who's talking to who? Who's communicating to who? Who is writing Genesis? Who are they writing it to? What are they trying to communicate? If if they're trying to communicate to Israel who the true God is, as opposed to false gods that Israel could turn to, remember the whole Bible is written as an apology for God, as a defense for God, as advocacy of who God is, rather than the false gods who are actual options, they're actual theological options in ancient Israel. Israel has a choice who to worship. And his claim is that every time they describe God, they're describing uh, just this facade of who God is rather than who they actually believe God is. That, I don't think that's probable. That, that's not a good explanation of the data. It doesn't fit what's going on. And it makes no sense that the Bible is advocating a facade picture of God rather than what the authors actually thought. I just lost John. Leaders. Turning now to the second plank of my case, open theism causes many of the problems that it purports to swoop in and save or solve. And what I'm going to argue here is that when open theists couple their commitment to libertarian uh, free will with their rejection of divine transcendence over created time, they then create a problem with regards creation and incarnation that they then purport to swoop in and be able to solve. So let me explain what I'm what I'm um, trying to say here. Um, in this quote from Open Theist Clark Pinnock, you can see the logic. He's got a commitment to libertarian free will such that God must restrain himself from what he could. Okay, so so just keep in mind, this is a debate about the Bible. What does the Bible teach? And now he's like, okay, let's talk about these philosophical concepts of free will. And uh, it's... It's I, the I, recurring theme of Calvinism. They don't actually talk about the Bible. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't philosophy. care. He's like Clark Pinnock, a guy that Will Duffy has never named, that I know of. I, I've never heard in my life Will Duffy mention Clark Pinnock's name. Maybe I have. I don't know, but it's not like something that he's known for. He's like Clark Pinnock has this certain idea of free will. Therefore, open theism yeah. is it do. And thus far, it's perfectly fine. There are plenty of um, people that aren't Calvinists that think people do have libertarian free will and who are not open theists. So I'm not blaming them for their commitment to libertarian. Yeah, so I'm I'm over here in the comments oh, during yeah, this debate. Complaining. <laughs> and this guy, oh, yeah, that's funny. Uh, date. Open theism is not the best way to read the Bible because the proof text would mean God doesn't have present knowledge. I said, which side is he arguing? <laughs> and then Scott here replies, he says, drinking game, because I, I'm always interested in drinking games. Drinking uh -oh. game, every time he says anthropomorphism. Scott's trying to kill me over here in the comments. <laughs> but then they take it to another step. They think that in order, to, in order for God to not have foreknowledge of the future, he must not be fully transcendent. In fact, he must, be, he must not be outside of time. So they are they are intentionally rejecting God's transcendence over time in order to um, in order to establish that God doesn't know the future. You see this in my opponent's own reasoning in his debate with Tyler Vela that I mentioned earlier. He says he's like, open theists get this. They don't believe that God is dun 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 outside of time. <laughs> he's like ah, <laughs> I thought th thought this was a proof text. Well, well, he does throw out some uh, timelessness proof text, and that's that's what I really got him on uh, in uh, right. in the post debate. Everybody but open theists believe that God knows the future exhaustively because they believe God is outside of time. Well, that implies that if he were outside of time, he would have exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. 
So with that in mind, he argues that since creation involves a before and an after, therefore the act of creation necessitates that the person doing the creating is in time. Well, so God can't create unless he's in time, and alleged, uh, and, and according to my opponent, voila, open theism wins. But of course, he's already rejected that God is transcendent over created time. Similarly, he says that um, in the, the incarnation... Uh, time is apparently a thing that God creates. It's like he's never talked to an open theist. Yeah. It's, it's, he's just, yeah. he's within his own bubble world. Mm-hmm is the act by which God became flesh, and this entails a change over time. And so therefore, uh, God must be um, in time, or else he can't become man. And once again, voila, open theism wins. But again, this is only after having already rejected transcendence over created time. He's like, my opponent rejects transcendence over time, and then guess what he does? He makes arguments against transcendence of opposing, or uh, transcendence of time. Isn't that terrible? Like, yeah, what? what? Yeah. He's, a, he's attacking your model. He doesn't agree with your model. He's, yeah. he's allowed to criticize your model from your per own perspective. That, that doesn't make it contradictory. Yeah. Mm. You see, if this is a popular depiction of the history of the known universe, oh, open no. theists want to say that in order oh, for God no. to create here at this point in time, he must. This is his. This is his opening salvo. Uh, does open theism best explain the biblical data? He says, "Look at my space-time chart. See, open theism doesn't best explain the biblical data." Must pre-exist I, that point. I mean, in yeah, like time. you really see this a lot. Is that the because there's physicists who are talking about this idea of a beginning of time therefore it coincides with the biblical evidence i mean you want to go down that route like <laughs> like what is the biblical evidence you want to start tying biblical evidence versus what physicists say about you know the history of time and space and, and the universe like i don't know if he actually wants to go down that route he's just trying to attach himself to it and in, in sort of ham-fisted ways I think it's it's all about signaling. He's like, I'm the scientific side, and and we we're scholarly over here. And the open theists they reject this scholarship. Therefore, open theism is not the best way to explain the biblical data. Yeah. It's like I I don't think any of the biblical authors uh, ever envisioned this chart he has no. on the screen. <laughs> um, they they never thought, well, time is a created substance that is manipulable by God. That God transcends this. None of them none of them do that. Uh, so he better get to his proof text pretty quick because I'm getting Lord. impatient. <laughs> but that's only true if one oh, first assumes oh. that God is in time. Consider the relationship between oh. an author and the world of the story the author creates. Here's a picture of oh, J.R.R. No. Tolkien. I'm, sk I'm skipping it. I'm skipping it. Telling the story of Middle Earth. No. Now imagine if. No, I'm skipping it. The story <laughs> okay. Okay. He's still talking about Tolkien and Middle Earth. Okay. Contribution to the book Philosophical Oof. Essays Against Open Theism. At least it was a Marvel this time. <laughs> both space and okay, okay, so here's his proof text. I gotta scroll back just a little bit. Coherent about that. Similarly, if he had oh, written no. himself into the story of Middle-earth as a character, a human kens. Okay, so here's the, his first verse, Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Uh, there's there's several things I noticed from this. Number one, there's a bunch of ellipses. So it's like he's not doing full verses. There's no context. 
inhabits eternity. That's an interesting phrase. Mm-hmm. How do, uh, he he's claiming that 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 phrase means God inhabits an eternal now. Yeah. And and so in my in my post debate or not post well my post debate response, but in my question to him, I pointed out that that phrase inhabits eternity is also used of man. And uh, I, he went and denied it. Um, I, we did a whole podcast with that. But the Strong's words, the exact same words are used of God and of man. Only in the case of God, he says this is like inhabiting some t- sort of timeless realm. And in the case of man, this is, uh, uh, it's referring to inhabiting a land yeah. in, in, in perpetuity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Just like repent means something different if you're talking about God or man, or any other word that you used for God is radically different than talking about when you use it with man. And so this is this is a really good object lesson for open theists. Uh, these people who they present themselves as scholarly and intelligent, uh, these people are are pundits. They're they're they might be smarter than average. They're they're probably midwits. They probably interacted with a lot of low intelligence people in their lives which gave them a false perception of their own intelligence and so they they make these types of mistakes there there goes a cat in the back there where they're like oh i'm so scholarly and knowledgeable and and professional but look at what he's doing this this awful proof texting and so let's actually turn to the context i'm just going to pull up isaiah 57 15. what do you think the context is about if you're just going to guess blindly in the, for the Isaiah one? Yeah. Because he apparently has ellipses and goes into Second Peter. Like, he ellipsed the whole Bible. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's about God in heaven being glorified, right? Well, oh, watch, watch this. Guess. Watch this. We'll start at 14. Know. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the Holy One, the one who is high lifted up, who inhabits eternity, and I'm reading from the ESV, so not every translation says inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and lofty place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of the just, a just gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore and cover the mourners. And so in the very text that he says is God inhabiting some sort of timeless nothingness, God is getting angry. Uh, God's punishments are not working. God uh, projects that uh, in the future he's he's going to be responsive to people and and change their hearts and and very critically within the exact same he ellipsed out oh man for thus says the holy one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place what's what's going on there where does he dwell and also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit what does that mean it, we we have an actual scholar. If you if you look at word biblical commentary, which is done by actual scholars who care about the subject material, what's happening there is God's inviting people to live with Him in this quote eternity forever. So here's what word biblical commentary says: Dweller forever. That's how they translate it. Actually, instead of inhabits eternity, dweller forever suggests that He God is now settled in Zion's temple, high and lifted up. 
whose name is holy, is reminiscent of Zion language in the Psalms. The invitation is for suitable worshipers to join Yahweh there. So he, he said, he said this reference in the text is God is living on the top of a mountain and inviting people to come live on the mountain with him forever. Is it the mountain or the temple? Oh, Zion. So it's uh, this is God's paradox. The place of glory and power belongs not to the proud, ambitious, and strong, but to the contrite, meek, and lowly spirit. So his his own proof text has God dwelling in a physical location, inviting people to live with him there, and then repenting and changing based on actions of man. So that that's the context of him saying, uh, "Okay, so let's 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 talk about it real quick. Why the heck would the author of Isaiah?" just put in a one weird random line about timelessness in this passage. Does it, does it even make sense? Does it provide meaning to anything that's in the surrounding context? And it's, th this is why he uses ellipses. This is why he quotes one verse. This is why he doesn't jump into the context. He really is desperate for a proof text, extremely desperate so that the entire context has to be avoided. And you just have to claim these are his two proof texts. So th yeah. these, these these are his best evidences in the Bible I mean, the, the for proof this. Text is just to look for the word eternity. Like I don't know, Google search it throughout the Bible, and then just in isolation quote it, right? That's yeah, and and nowhere else is is uh, this eternity like translated like this. Uh, basically, oh, I don't got it pulled up, but basically it's. It's a different word than the typical word people use for like the ages. It means that you're doing something in perpetuity. Yeah. Yeah. So when the people inhabit the land eternally or in perpetuity, using the same phrase, inhabits eternity, inhabit dwells in perpetuity. So God dwells in perpetuity in the high and exalted place that's being talked about and invites us to come live with them there in context. This this just goes to show you these people, they think they're scholars. They 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 think they're better than everyone else. They're they're pundits. They don't care about the text. They don't care about the context. They don't care about the Bible. They're not particularly smart individuals. They're engaged in punditry and not scholarship. So I'll go ahead and hit play. We can look at his second proof text. Um, uh, you're probably aware of this second proof text. Both space and time, not merely that he's extensive within it. He says, uh, this verse here in Isaiah means God transcends space and time. That's what this phrase means. Based on what? Ba what in the context would give you that idea? Where? <laughs> and Peter in 2 Peter 3.8 says that God transcends the passage of created time by saying... <laughs> okay, Peter, he says God... So he says in, in 2 Peter, Peter's saying God transcends the passage of created time... When it says, with the Lord, one day is as, as as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. It's like he brings us up without having any idea what Will Duffy would say about it. I, that, that's one of the big problems. Like, obviously, he knows, he, like, if he was thinking about this at all, he would know Will Duffy has something to say about this. And he yeah, try to find out what Will says instead of just declaring this as his proof right away. Right. Um Will Duffy had an entire timeless list de debate with one of these Calvinists and uh, the Calvinist kept saying, it. <laughs> it, it was really funny because the Calvinist is like, yeah, see, these are my proof texts because they can re be read to say that God is outside of time. And then Will Duffy's like, yeah, but the verse doesn't say that though. 
this verse says is talking about how God experiences time, which is the exact opposite of being outside of time. Yeah. Experiencing time means God is not timeless, right? That it's and the guy's like, well, it can be read in light of um, timelessness. Well, Duffy's like, these are your proof texts. My problem is nothing in the Bible proves the thing that you're trying to claim. And and the debate was about if the Bible describes yeah. God as timeless. And so it's not about his personal, what he personally cares, like reads into the text. Uh, Chris Day is not a scholar. He's just a pundit and a pretty bad pundit at that. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He transcends the passage. Okay, so do you know the context of this one? Yeah, they're... they're... There's people who are saying that God will never come back, you know, because thousand years have passed and God hasn't come back. So where's the promise of his coming? And then he says this, you know, the time is different for God than man. So you might think that soon means right now, but soon could mean a lot of things for God. Yeah. So in Second Peter, more specifically, all the prophecies that Jesus gave of a quick return, it's like you're not going to go through the cities of Israel before God returns. And uh, don't shut up the scrolls because the time is at hand. And uh, per perhaps you guys will still be alive when this happens. In Second Peter, all these people are dying and they're not seeing any resolution. And Peter is trying to convince these guys to, to still maintain the faith, maintain heart. And the idea that he presents in context is that God is long-suffering and God's not willing that any should perish. And so is will bear things a lot longer than people. And so that that's the context of what's going on here. It doesn't make sense that God is timeless. And so timelessness is, God doesn't really care about the time frames that he gives to people in any circumstances because he transcends time. So there's, no, that's not what he's, that that would be very disheartening. If, if you're expecting the apocalypse to come and kill the wicked, God's going to round up the wicked, kill them, gather the righteous and bless them. It's not heartening to hear, well, God is timeless. And so all the time delineations that he makes throughout the Bible are kind of meaningless and he could kind of just pick and choose whatever he wants. That's, that's disheartening. That that's the entire opposite of the context of second Peter. So you, you, they literally for their proof text have to reverse the immediate context of whatever's going on. Time. So with this in mind, we can easily say without <laughs> any question that the God-man can indeed grow and change in created time while God in his nature, his divine nature, is unchanged beyond created time. We could say the God-man cannot know his future in created time while God in his divine being outside of created time. Okay, does open theism best explain the biblical data? Let's talk about God-man time interaction. Uh knows the whole future of created time and we can say that the god man can be tempted to sin while in created time even though god is unable to sin in his divine nature beyond created time there's no contradictions in any of these so now that brings me to the third and final plank of my case open theism poorly explains the fulfillment of past directed prayer okay so this this might actually be his best plank through this debate he's going to argue that there are certain prayers that require Things to happen before the prayer is actually said. Uh, Path-directed prayers are explained in detail by Dr. James Anderson in his contribution to the book Philosophical Essays Against Open Theism. But suffice it to say, a prayer, a path-directed prayer is one whose fulfillment now requires God to have acted in the past. 
And I want to make two points here. Firstly, unlike all of open theism's alternatives, open theism does not have the capacity, does not enable God to answer uh, past directed prayers because he doesn't know they'll be made. And I just want you to consider for a moment how common these kinds of prayers are, or at the very least, are likely to be among God's people. Anytime you have so, so, told someone you would pray for, during their job interview or during their life-saving surgery. <laughs> He's like, remember those times where you prayed for someone after the fact? Uh, in my model, that prayer was effective. Was answered. Yeah, it's like, it's like, well, okay, what if I prayed for something after it was done and then it didn't ha Oh, I guess my prayer was ignored. I just... It's like praying that your car, like let's say your car doesn't start in the morning, yeah. then praying like 30 minutes later that your car would start in the morning. It's like, okay. Yeah, th this is like his argument, why open theism. As, to, to the biblical authors, they're like, pray for things in the past because they're effective. Like, at, like, is he trying to refer to people's personal experience of praying? For, like, say this, you pray for someone and then you find out their surgery had already happened and went well. You're Oh, it was my prayer that worked. Like that's what he's doing. React like that? It's, like, I, it's it's insane to me. I, his arguments <laughs> are absolutely insane to me. Okay, so but he does give a biblical example of what he thinks is a future prayer affecting the past, or during their first date, or during their merit wedding planning, whatever. Anytime you tell somebody you're going to pray for them, and then you wake up too late, you accidentally sleep in, or you forget, or whatever, and you pray, oh, Lord, please let this have worked out. Well, you're doing something unintelligible on the open theist view, but every other view uh. has what's necessary to allow for that including mine. <laughs> but more importantly than that, since this is a debate about the biblical data, open theism yeah, most poorly explains out of all of its alternatives, the fulfillment of past directed prayers in scripture, like the one we see recorded in Genesis 24. Abraham's servant is looking for a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. And while he's standing by a well, he prays to God that he would reveal who Isaac's future bride is by having her come and offer him water and to water his camels. Well, we read that before he even finishes praying that prayer, that woman appears on the scene and does exactly what he had asked God that she would do. And there are tons of free homes. Okay, so let's, let's, on face value, this is not what he described as the thing you're praying for happened already. He's praying for a specific woman to do a specific action, which happens, uh, it starts to happen during the prayer and concludes after the prayer is done. Yeah. So it's praying for a future thing. Uh, his argument's going to be, I, there's a little bit of clicking on your end. His argument's going to be that there, there are past factors that had to be accounted for for this. But this is actually, if you just look at it, you just read it, this is not something which has already happened in the past that's being prayed for to happen. Yeah, not only, human choices that must oh. have been in not only has it not happened in the past, but like it's a weird thing to say that this is somehow a disproof of open theism. Like, it doesn't necessarily say that his prayer made it happen in the first place. Right, and so uh, he's going to go through various elements. Oh, she had to be at the well. She had to have a water pot. It's like okay, I just, um, I guess God was trying to get her to the well that day. Maybe because maybe he saw the guy coming to find a bride. And uh, started doing that. Yeah. That doesn't mean that he, he made all those different elements happen because of the prayer. 
this this it's a weird argument. We'll get into it after he finishes his argument. Involved going into this, just one, for example, is that all of the family at her house would have exhausted or at least nearly exhausted the water that they had that would necessitate her going out to the well to get more in the first place. So and so and all of those would have been happened prior to Abraham even beginning his prayer. Open theism just does not have the resources to um, address that to explain that. So okay. okay, so so here's his idea. So um, there's an individual that goes to a well, prays for a woman to approach him and give him water. Therefore, even though that was concluded after the prayer was said, God must have brought her to the well and uh, regulated the water content in the house up to that point as if going to the well wasn't a normal thing if it... well, the weird thing is that like he he himself does not think the prayer was causal he thinks not only that prayer but all prayer including prayers for something to happen in the future is coincidental it's not really re related to your relationship with god yeah, absolutely, because God can't gain from outside himself, so people can't influence God because that would contradict his classical attributes of immutability and, and uh, simplicity and impassibility. God can't be affected from outside himself. So basically his argument is why open theism doesn't best explain the biblical data is because there might have been a prayer sometime which had prior factors that might have had to be accounted for for the prayer's fulfillment, uh, guess what? Not all prayers are fulfilled. Yeah. And so pointing to this Most one prayer, are. like if if she wasn't at the well, this would probably be unfulfilled. It's, it doesn't it cause a problem. It in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have made it to the Bible. It just went to. And so it's this weird thing like this prayer was fulfilled by God. God set up all events up to this point in order to fulfill this prayer that he Including knew was coming. And it can't be that People normally go to water holes. It, it wasn't like the guy's praying, I'll let her be wearing a blue dress. And then she's like wearing a blue dress that had to actually, it's it's like, let her give me some water that she she's at the watering hole that she has on hand for being at the watering hole. It's not like, let her be six foot tall and, and blonde. I don't know. Nothing like that. And so this, it's a very strained argument. And, uh, Will Duffy, I don't. Will Duffy doesn't call out any of these points that that I that I know in this There's debate. There's only so much time. <laughs> there isn't, but the whole debate does. Open theism best explain the biblical data, and basically his argument is some open theists say things about some verses which I think are incorrect. Um, more extreme open theism explains these verses better, and there's some philosophy that uh, open theism might struggle to deal with. And also, sometimes in the Bible, maybe some things had to be in place before prayer was said for that prayer to get fulfilled. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is this is not an argument. And, and common things, things that everyone does all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not an argument. And uh, what's really telling in this debate is that Chris Date presses Will Duffy on prophecy. How can this prophecy be fulfilled? And Will Duffy says there's prophecies all the time within the Bible that don't come true and Chris date just it just like it goes in one ear and comes out the other and it's like he do doesn't process this and then still demands how God <laughs> how God can fulfill certain prophecies it's like did you not process the prior comment if it didn't happen it, it didn't need to happen it, this is not something that's like faded and must happen prophecies within the Bible don't turn out 
in detail or sometimes at all, just depending. And it's like he couldn't mentally process this fact and to it understand. It's not like there's a specific reason it never happens. Like sometimes there's no reason whatsoever that the prophecy didn't function, right? Yeah. Wh why didn't Why didn't Nebuchadnezzar take all of Tyre? Yeah. What, what What is the reason? There's no reason given in the text. Maybe there is a reason. Maybe his men just didn't fight hard enough. Why didn't Why didn't uh, Israel take all of Moab? Well, is it because there's this uh, counterattack after the king of Moab sacrifices his son and disheartens Israel and they give up? Maybe, but the text isn't explicit why these certain prophecies fail. And then what happens is the Christian apologists go in and they like, well, so Tyre, it says, it says nations. So never mind that King Nebuchadnezzar is a king over many nations, as it says in the Bible. And the many nations is is uh, auxiliaries to King King Nebuchadnezzar's force, which are attacking attacking Tyre. They say, 200 years later, Alexander <laughs> the Great will overthrow Tyre. It's like, who's the prophecy against? Oh, Tyre, you guys are evil. So 200 years from now, uh, your yeah, kids who are not... Come by. <laughs> and then you'll be destroyed 200 years later. Is that what's going on in the prophecy? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening. And so they, they have to go through these extreme mental uh, juggles in order to get prophecy fulfilled, yeah. except for they won't allow the same leeway in prophecy fulfillment with uh, open th prophecies that they demand open theists explain. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how can this happen? Well, you guys have shown you're open to almost any explanation, no matter how ludicrous for <laughs> prophecy fulfillment. And so take your pick. Make one up. If this didn't happen, what would be your justification? Uh, well, we'll go with that. Because you guys, you, it's, there's there's no standard. There's no intellectual standard here. Ugh. I just... I can't believe sometimes people's intellectual disintegrity um, and poor thinking standards. And I, I think, I definitely think it's because this guy thinks he's actually smarter than he actually is. He's, he's not a scholar. He, he's a pundit, definitely. Again, number one, open theistic interpretations of open theist proof texts are self-defeating. Number two, what open theism boasts that can solve are problems that open theism itself introduces. And thirdly, open theism struggles to explain the fulfillment of past-directed prayers. Thank you. Thank you. All right, are you convinced that open theism doesn't best explain the <laughs> biblical data? The biblical data. He says... Here, here are like a handful of arguments open theism makes, and I disagree with them. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't in any way say whether or not it best explains something. Right. He he doesn't given us an alternative. Yes. It, it it could be it could be matter of fact that open theism is a terrible way to explain the biblical data, it's, but it could also be that it's the best way. of all <laughs> terrible ways to explain the biblical data. Yeah. It, it, it could be the case. And so he's not giving us an alternative. And so he got this from Tyler Vela. Tyler Vela didn't think that Tyler Vela had to actually make an argument as to why his position is true right. and Will Duffy's is false. He, he incorporated this into his own debate thinking it was intelligent. This is why this is why I'm questioning his intelligence that he thinks this is proper. And I I don't know what neutral parties think watching this debate, but the Calvinists are all in there like, wow, Chris Date really smoked this guy. Like, what are, what are what are you what debate did you watch? Which debate what Okay, Will Duffy 
in his opening argument, he talks about the 400, 500, 600 different times in the Bible where the Bible explains how God knows something. God knows through watching. God knows through thinking. God knows through uh, determining to do something. God knows through testing. And so he points out all these ways by which God acquires information, which is completely denied uh, by Chris Date here. It's like, I think Will Duffy has, has the better argument. He's got hundreds of verses that, that Chris Date in the cross-examination, he admitted like, he says, oh, the wooden literal reading. Yeah, is the open theist re reading. Yeah, yeah hundreds yes. and hundreds of verses, <laughs> countless verses. He's got data. <laughs> Will Duffy shows data. He, this guy just grabs a couple things and says, oh, I don't agree with it. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, so we're about an hour. We could probably see if there's some crosstalk here and get into that before exiting. So then we can kind of see their interaction or acquires new information okay yes. awesome uh 10 minute uh four 10 minute periods and will is gonna lead the first one and basically they're just gonna be talking uh to each other and uh we'll get started whenever you're ready will they never unmute themselves um, we can't hear you my fault there you go, there you go. Uh, hey, Chris, so the audience doesn't think I'm straw manning you. Can you confirm for everyone that I was correct in my opening statement when I said that you believe God never obtains or acquires new information? Yes. yes. Awesome. So in my next question for you, it's, it's important that you know what I'm not asking. I'm not asking if you agree with me in my belief that God obtains information. I'm also not asking you if you agree with my interpretation of the biblical data that God obtains information. But my question is this, do you agree that based on a literal reading of the text, the Bible states hundreds of times that God obtains new information by observation and experience? Almost, I would not agree to that using just the word literal, but if you add woodenly literal, if you say woodenly literal or literalistic, <laughs> then yes, I agree with you. Uh, can you, you help me understand the difference between literal and wood? If, if you say, I don't like it, <laughs> then I agree. Okay, so Will Duffy probably should have uh, uh, replied with, would any ancient Israelite not take this at face value? It's like, would the normal yeah, I mean, Israelite... Would anyone know that, right? Well, yeah, it might be... Be, because guess what would happen then? Because then he has to put himself in someone else's shoes and then answer, and then the audience could see whether or not he's being intellectually dishonest. Like you're going to tell me, like an ancient farmer hearing about God is is watching you and testing you to know your heart, that they're going to be like, well, there's actually a different metaphysical system at play here, in which God doesn't actually acquire information and has ungenerated, eternal, unfalsifiable non-dependent, non-discursive types of... No, no, no! None of them thought that way. Wouldn't we, literal? Yeah, um, a lot of biblical scholars will say that... Like, it is a worthwhile thing to, to try to understand. Like, a lot of what Calvinism is, is saying, I, I'm reading the secret Bible code that, you know, most of this wooden literal interpretation is what the normal people read because they're just not smart enough to get the secret Bible code. So maybe he actually like, not necessarily ask about ancient Israelites, but just ask if anyone reading this 
you know, just a rant, like a, a person brand new to Christianity, how will he interpret God is based on this, for example? Yeah, it'd be great because putting him in other people's shoes doesn't allow him to give his own answers. And then he has to kind of give like a, a normal person answer rather <laughs> yeah. than his caveated nonsense that he himself has in his own head. Yeah, the, the Bible is a secret manual to Calvinists. They are regenerated. They can read the true meaning of the text. And all those unregenerated individuals can't truly understand the secret meaning. It's, it's, if it sounds cultish, it, it, it's because it is cultish. It's, it's a form of Gnosticism where the special enlightened elect have the true teaching that's not accessible to the normal masses. Right literal in the context of biblical interpretation doesn't mean wooden literal um like uh taking an anthropomorphism for example and reading it as though it's a literal statement of fact um th they wouldn't say that's the. so what's an anthropomorphism is that a, a figure of speech that you're familiar with that operates in any fictional literature that you're aware of i mean most people just say metaphor or simile depending on what they're talking about right like you can say anthropomorphism but it'd be like things like um like the uh, cat was behaving like a person and you don't it, really like you don't really talk in those terms even even in the cases that it happens it'd be a little bit like you can use it but you'd have to be doing it in the most uh, abstract scholarly way well i i remember an upright citizens brigade episode in which uh he's like pitching ideas to disney he's like how about anthropomorphic baby talking planes and then there's like little planes yeah, that are talking yeah, and singing for example and so anthropomorphism is not like a, a concept you're going to find in the Bible unless it's a fictional framing device. You're, you're going to find metaphor or simile yeah. or idiomatic speech. It's not going to be anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphite was a pejorative used by Augustine and people of that time to say, hey, those people are anthropomorphites, meaning those people believe God has a literal body. And so it, it didn't have this this uh, idea where you could just, just call something an anthropomorphism and just dismiss it offhand. It seems to be a modern phenomenon, which doesn't, but used by people who fundamentally don't understand the use and function of language as Chris date is shown to do. So, ugh. literal view, they would say that the literal reading is the literarily intended reading. So in the case of a poetic, you know, statement or something like that, the literal reading would be the literarily intended meaning, not a wooden. So Michael Fishbane is a Jewish scholar and uh, he has a book about anthropomorphisms or metaphors or whatever in the Bible. And he suggests maybe these metaphors we should take literally. Maybe when it talks about God fighting a sea monster, um, God maybe actually, they actually were trying to communicate that God fought a sea monster. Maybe, maybe we need to posit that as a possibility in the text that we are reading and not just dismiss it out of hand. And I think he's right that we do need to consider that things that we consider idioms might actually be, are supposed to be taken on face value. That just, it needs to be part of the possibilities of the text. And Calvinists don't like this. People who are heavy into philosophy don't like this. They want easy ways to dismiss options in reading the text. Oh, if that text meant this, if, if God went down to Sodom to see if the reports which came to him are true, then God wouldn't have past knowledge. That would be terrible. Um, anthropomorphism, dismiss it. We don't have to explain what's going on. It's meant for these peasant farmers um, who are not as smart as us Calvinists. We, we, we secretly yeah. know what's going on.
we we got the idea. <laughs> yeah, Literal or literalistic just, reading of the text. Like this is the thing. He's he's saying that the intended meaning is not the literal meaning. Fine. Fine. Uh so that means that you just need the the idiot test, right? If the intended meaning is separate than the literal meaning, then put an idiot there. I'm just saying idiot test, but like a random, like not very intelligent person, have them read it. Are they reading it inappropriately? If so, what you're really saying is that you're not communicating properly. You're, You're really not trying to communicate in a way that people understand you. And so you're being very cryptic, almost deceptive about the way you're saying anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an excellent point that if if the biblical authors are writing systematically in ways that the audience has a systematic misunderstanding of their actual beliefs, that there's there's something fundamentally wrong Adaptive. with the way that they're communicating. Um, but if by literal you simply mean um, very woodenly literal or literalistic, then sure, there are lots of statements that um, could be read How in that way. Keep a straight way. face. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> so. You ask a Calvinist, and you're like, um, Deuteronomy says that God led them into the wilderness to test them to know what was in their hearts. Why did God lead them in the wilderness? And then they they go through this they they do this thing where like he does where they they start to give a big essay about uh, foreknowledge and, and and God's ability to understand heart. It's like no the the text actually gives a prepositional phrase which is a purpose clause. And God led them through the wilderness to test them to know what was in their hearts. What what is that preposition? What is it? What, what's what's the purpose clause? Why why did he lead them? What what's the very next? prepositional phrase it's like they, they just don't want to say it it's like what does the text say i we, yeah. we don't care about your big explanation can you just admit that the text says this one thing and they won't do it <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like they're, they're definitely definitely afraid of just like reading the bible the way that you do okay so <clears throat> i just want to make sure i'm understanding and by the way i actually created a list for the debate and i've I have a list so far. There's 654 verses that I found so far that state in the Bible that God obtains information. So to be clear, your position is that those verses do not mean what they say. They do not mean what you read them as saying. <laughs> no, 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 not anyone. No, I'm, I'm telling you, they do not mean what you understand them to be saying. They are not meant to be taken in the wooden literal literal way that I think that you're doing. Yeah, this this is really funny. (laughs) Does open theism best explain the biblical data? Will Duffy says 650 times, and that's not an exhaustive count. This is just what I found in preparation for this debate. 650 times tells us God obtains knowledge. Is that accurate? Chris State's like, oh, no. (laughs) Okay, let me read... Uh, let me read an example of one, and then I'll, I'll we can dive into this here a little bit. So this this is a good strategy by Will Duffy because uh, it lets the audience understand what the content of all his proof texts are that he found 650 of, so that they could start conceptualizing how often, how common, and yeah. what these actually state. Um, Deuteronomy 13.3 says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
So the literal reading of that is that God is testing them in order to know something. The woodenly literal reading, yes. Okay, so why do you <laughs> not accept wooden, that? Wooden, wooden. Because uh, number one, as I attempted to argue during my opening, I think that when you um, when you um, embrace the hermeneutic that open theism applies to a variety of texts like these, it is self defeating. It, it is it results in absurdity, and so um, I'm 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 disinclined to embrace a hermeneutic that I already know is going to lead me in, into absurdity. But secondly, there are countless examples of God exhaustively knowing the future, um, including the countless acts of future uh, of human free choices. And so when I look at those um, and, and everything else, the fact that open theism causes the very problems it claims to uh, to solve, um, I'm not inclined to favor uh, a woodenly literal reading of this text over all that other data. Okay, so before we get to uh, my hermeneutic, because I haven't told you what my hermeneutic is, what hermeneutic are you using to interpret that these hundreds of verses do not mean exactly what they say, which is that God obtains information? Analogia fide. And what is that? The analogy of faith. It's, it's letting the clearer text in scripture interpret the less clear. Okay, and then we got examples of his clearer text. God <laughs> inhabiting eternity and uh, a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. Those are his clearer texts. Yeah, which in and the the unclear one is oh, I specifically say God is doing this to test you. That's unclear. That's murky and shadowy. <laughs> yeah, the, the more clear one is inhabiting eternity, meaning he's timeless and has no relation to time. That is the more clear one. It's like that, that these people they don't care. He doesn't care about the Bible. He doesn't yeah. care. That's right. Okay. Um, a few months Sam writes the open theism hermeneutic is just reading the Bible and believing it was yeah if you read the Bible and believe what it says straight to hell do not pass go ago in your debate with Michael Lofton you said multiple times that your method of exegesis is the grammatical historical method did you change your mind in the last few months no but these are both tools that are used in the um... uh, so do you know what the grammatical historical method is Okay, so I, I think that is the method in which you're trying to figure out what the author is attempting to communicate to their intended audience at that particular cultural point of time. And so it's it's really funny. I've met these Calvinists who that that is their proclaimed hermeneutic because that sounds good. The Bible means what it says to its intended audience. Uh, but then you start pressing them on these things. And they, they start going haywire. It's like uh, their, their wires start uh, fizzling and and uh, their sparks start flying. And then they, they go into full defensive mode when they want to deny that things actually have meaning to their intended audience. It, it's like they, they know that that should be the hermeneutic, but they don't have, like they would have to give up so much of what they're so desperately clinging to. So they can't do it. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if it hurts Chris Date internally if he's yeah. <laughs> if he's intelligent enough to pick up on his internal inconsistencies he, he doesn't seem to and so Idol Killer writes that uh, uh, these these Calvinists really don't have clear proof text because they claim all God's self-revelation in scripture is analogical it's, it's not accurate interpretation of scripture. Uh, grammatical historical exegesis is one of the tools that I use, but the other tool that I use in addition to grammatical historical exegesis is analogia fide. 
what would the grammatical historical method of exegesis tell us about these hundreds of verses that say God <laughs> obtains information? The grammatical historical method can't tell you anything about those hundreds of oh. verses. You have to apply it to any given text in its context. And in its context, if you ignore what the uh, part of what goes into grammatical historical exegesis is looking at how grammar and expressions are used elsewhere in relevant literature and also what the people of that time believed as reflected in what they uh, have said elsewhere. So pulling in those resources, those grammatical, cultural, literary um, resources is part and parcel of grammatical historical exegesis. Grammatical, the, the last thing that grammatical, uh, the grammatical historical method is, is applying it to one tiny pericope in the text to the exclusion of anything else beyond the text. What would the historical grammatical method tell us in these verses that I'm reading where God says that he uh, looks in order to see and he looks in order to find out he tests in order to know would, would the well, historical grammatical method would the historical grammatical method say that my interpretation is right or yours well, I'm not about to, I mean, we, we could certainly use up a lot of our audience's time to uh, undertake. <laughs> he he doesn't know. He literally oh. doesn't know. Oh, it's so funny. It. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Will Duffy could be just like, okay, what does uh, Christine Hayes, when she's using canonical criticism, say about these verses? Does does she think they have anything to do with God being timeless and and having this type of ungenerated knowledge, or does she think that they're actually communicating the exact thing that they're saying to their intended audience, that God looks to see and learn? It's something like that. I mean, is it wrong for him to call him out right there and say you're you're deliberately trying to avoid answering? Well, uh, Will Duffy's tends to be a nice guy, but... That's probably that, why he gets the debate and not you. Well, yeah. Uh, I would say, <laughs> listen, listen. There are hundreds and hundreds of verses that say God tests to know, or God watches to see, God decides to do things, God responds to prayer, listens to people, and then responds accordingly, changes his mind. These verses are everywhere in the text. You got two random proof texts that you spent zero time in proving that they mean anything close to anything that you claim, that normal people, normal scholarship on those verses, they don't agree with you. There's so that there's better and alternative explanations for all your proof texts. You're telling me that those two little proof texts that you you can't definitively claim are your view are overriding those hundreds and hundreds of times throughout multiple centuries of texts to various audiences and various circumstances. Your two texts override that. Is that what's going on in context? Yeah. Uh, then just just start forcing him to. Put himself in other people's shoes because one thing that calvinists do never give ground on any point ever yeah and so if you you just try ask them if i brought this text to the mall and grabbed 10 random people and asked them if god's testing to know what would they say but but if they're never giving ground then what you got to do is you got to keep hammering them until they look absolutely ridiculous like every time they they're they're really just exposing themselves over and over and over again if they don't get ground. Right. And, and so that's why it's good to just, just force them into situations in which they are admitting things that they don't want to admit. Yeah. And so if, if you pound them on the preposition, in this verse, does this verse give a reason why God tests? 
and then uh, just just force them to give the statement. Uh, and then it'd say, okay, if I brought this verse to a mall and asked 10 random people why God was testing, what would the majority of them say? Or if there's a most popular answer, what would it be? Why did God test? And just force them to give those small concessions because yeah. they, they really want to just avoid anything that looks like their position is shoddy, that their position is not mainstream, that their position's unscholarly or not not uh, probably natural or or able to be understood intelligently. It's they never give any ground on anything is is the name of these debates. I don't think that's what you want me to do. But what I will say is this, once again, proper grammatical historical exegesis. He says, I'm not going to actually explain the thing that this debate's about. Um, <laughs> right. Will Duffy asked him a question. He's like, I'm not going to do that, even though the debate's about this. Um, let's, let's do something else. This does not mean looking at this text in a vacuum. And I know that you know that. I'm not trying to accuse you of, of, of suggesting otherwise. So what that means is I'm going to look at how the language is used elsewhere. So, for example, you've got the language of um, uh, God seeing something, which we know from other texts is anthropomorphic language because he doesn't have eyeballs to see things. Um, yeah, so I'll... Is, or is, this is this is their type of uh, straw manning. Mm -hmm. Does someone need eyeballs to see something? Robots see things. Video cameras yeah. see things. Um, bats, you could say, see things. Um, so it's it's a straw man. But it, that's regardless of that. God might have eyes to see. You're not discounting that. And if God does have a corporal body, um, open theism is true. It's it's not. It's not this uh, Calvinistic <laughs> determinism and Calvinistic uh, outside space and time singularity. He, he's literally arguing that the most natural reading of these things is open theism, extreme form of open theism, and bodily corporality in God, which would be one form of open theism. Will Duffy doesn't take him to task and point out, everything you're telling me is that we should be more extreme open theists. That's that's literally your argument. Yeah. Does open theism best explain the Bible? Yes, extreme forms of open theism are the best explanation for the yeah. biblical data. We would we might also look at how what, what the is what the very culture that produced this text says about God elsewhere, like his exhaustive foreknowledge of the future and his ability to answer prayers even before those prayers are offered. Um, so when you look when you bring in all those resources and apply them as you attempt to understand this text, I think why does God need eyeballs in order to see? He never explains that. Uh, Sam writes, well, he doesn't want to explain it because he doesn't want to actually engage in this type of conversation because. It won't behoove him. It's it's better for him to kind of like build a straw man to defeat and never go back and actually talk through the ramifications and the nuances of this. The best explanation arising from a grammatical and historical exegesis, exegesis is that what we're looking at here is a didactic anthropomorphism, very similar to what I think is your take on God walking in the garden and saying, where are you, Adam? Um, it's didactic. And what's being communicated, what's being taught in this. Yeah, Adam says Duffy should number the list of verses one to 600 or whatever and tell date just to pick a number from one to 600. And then they just go to, through that verse together right then and there. There. That would be a good strategy. Yeah, Basic I mean, Chris Date's answer to any one of those is you got to take the whole picture, which is why it's funny. Will Duffy says I've got six hundred versions, six hundred verses that we can look at 
to get a whole picture of something. And but if you take any one, he'll just retreat and say, "No, no, no! You got to look at the broader perspective." <laughs> yeah, it's like the Bible's a big book. You got like two verses. I got like seven hundred data points throughout the Bible in various contexts. You you did nothing to show that any of your proof texts mean anything close to what you're claiming. I think open theism best explains the biblical data. Nothing you said has proven otherwise. In fact, you're arguing open theism, extreme open theism, is the best way to explain the data. Yeah, that's it's it. I don't see. I I understand why Calvinists will say Chris Date won the debate because if anyone says anything that affirms their priors, they're going to say that that person won the debate. Well, yeah, like is you said, it? they never give ground. Like if, if the reality of Calvinists is that they can never give ground on anything you will never, ever, ever see them say that they lost any debate. Yeah. <laughs> this text is something that's being taught to readers about um, the purpose behind uh, or, or the results of what God does by um, bringing these people that are false prophets to the people of Israel. Um, he reveals that they are not, in fact, going to fear him and keep his commandments. They'll follow after the false prophet. So when... Deuteronomy says that the Lord led them 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, here's my comment in the debate. A date. Look elsewhere to see how phrases are used, except his proof text on inhabiting eternity. <laughs> <laughs> to humble them and test them to know what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not. What is leading you to say that that, that verse right there is an anthropomorphism? I, I think I already answered that. Again, it has to do with how these kinds of expressions are used elsewhere in Scripture, the, the Scripture that was produced by this culture. Hold, hold on, two, hold on. I, I need to hold your feet to the fire. Can you give me an example? I know of no example of what you're saying right now. I, I'm, I'm fine saying I don't have – I'm, I'm not – I'll just put it this way. I am not going to do an in-depth exegesis of this text in, in waste our audience's time. I cannot time. do I'm it. happy to put that one I aside hear, and say I don't I have cannot. an example for you on that point. But on, but we have seen elsewhere, I mean, when you uh, – to say that God, like, f flies in on a cloud, we know that's anthropomorphic. Um, and so we already have from this culture's own literature anthropomorphic language that – sets a precedent for that here. And then comes the cultural aspect. What did the culture that produced this say about God elsewhere? And this That's follows well after the heels of Genesis uh, 25 or whatever it is in which... Yeah, so like God inhabiting the temple with a cloud and God covering up uh, uh, Mount Sinai with a cloud. That's not anthropomorphic. That's not That's not dismissed. That, that like literally happened in the text. And... Uh, do you, do you realize how many apocryphal texts there are? And, and he would immediately say, those are all apocryphal. If you ask him, what did the people think about God outside of this? Well, look at all the apocryphal texts you can look at to see what people think about God. Oh, no, no, that's not, that's not the word of God, so it doesn't count. What, what, where is he going then? Like, <laughs> are you going to use that or not? <laughs> or are you just going to say you use it and then don't? <laughs> yeah, Josephus, uh, when talking about Genesis 3, he's like, uh, God didn't expect Adam to do these things. He is surprised. And so, okay, so maybe in the cultural context, there's open theists like uh, Josephus who understand that kind of the text might mean what the text actually says. Yeah. But we're about at an hour and 30, and Pink Noise says, just turned in, tuned in, what did I miss? So we could uh, summarize, <laughs> summarize this whole thing. So we today we covered 
Chris Date's opening argument, why does open theism not best explain the biblical data? And his case is that I got two proof texts whose meaning is uh, definitely my, my understanding, and they override 700 verses found by Will Duffy that say that God acquires knowledge. Because if you really read my verses in my particular way, you can see that God is timeless. And also, open theism has some ways of reading certain verses that uh, I don't like per various open theist scholars who are not Will Duffy. And it's, don't, don't forget that the, the question of the debate is, does open theism best explain the biblical data? Which, you know, data is like lots and lots of data points, right? Uh, and we're just watching him in cross-examination keep saying, I'm not going to give an exhaustive view of the data. <laughs> I'm not going to go through it and, and waste everyone's time looking at the data. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to explain the data. Okay, so it, here, here's a special treat. This pink noise person is a Calvinist. And here's what they say. God was being deceptive when he wrestled Jacob because it wasn't a fair fight. Same issues, different day with open theists. I, I asked I asked Calvinists one day on a Calvinist webpage, I'm like, has God ever lost a wrestling match? And it sent them into a tizzy. And they were they were besides themselves. They didn't know how to answer this. They were all started crazy. And then, so they do this pink noise thing where they're like, oh, it was it wasn't a real wrestling. God can't actually lose things. And and they're it's like they're trying to justify their crazy priors, their crazy theology with the biblical data, and they're just they're just struggling to make sense of it. So it's like, oh, God could have won if he wanted. Well, okay, let's pretend God could win if he wanted to, and that's what's going on. Which there's no indication whatsoever in the t the text reads the opposite of that that this was actually a fair fight that Jacob won. Uh, okay, let's down. yeah, let's pretend that God could just won win that fight no matter what. Um, did he lose that wrestling match? And uh, they, they're besides, they don't know how to answer. It's just the funniest thing. Let's just put, turn there real quick. Genesis uh, 32, 22. And we'll see if the text means, uh, says anything that this Calvinist, this pink noise guy wants it to say. Fantastic. So Genesis 32, 22. And we'll see, has God ever lost a wrestling match? Oh, no. Okay, the same night he rose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, crossed the floor to Jabbok. He took and sent them across the street. Okay, or stream. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. What in that, what, what in that text makes, makes pink noise think that this is like just some sort of uh, fake fight, like a child wrestling type thing? That's not, not what's happening in the text. These people are lunatics. These people are lunatics. So it uh, doesn't matter what the Bible says. It uh, doesn't matter any wording in the Bible. Whatever they want to believe in their head is the truth because they're Calvinists. They got the super secret squirrel decoder glasses. They could see the true meaning of the text. They know to ignore hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses within the Bible that talk about who God is and what God does and why God does it, how God learns information, how God interacts, 
all of that is not important to the Calvinists. They got their own special theology. They don't even have to prove that their theology is true. They just, they just claim it. And if whatever they claim is in fact true, these people are not biblical scholars. They don't care about the Bible. Uh, they want to discard the Bible and they do everything they can to undermine the Bible. These people are pundits. They're, they're not smarter than you. Even if they have their degrees, even if they say they can read Hebrew, they're not smarter than you. They can't read the text. They don't care about the text. These people are not good faith individuals. All right, John, any closing thoughts? Um, not really. It, it, it doesn't seem like they were trying to answer their initial question. So, you know, there's lots of ways that you can go about and approach this question. And there's lots of ways you can probably be a little, like, crueler about dealing with this. But I think Will Duffy was holding his own from the little bit that I saw. And... Um, Seems like a good debate then. Yeah, Will Duffy does know how to do cross-examinations and does know how to press points and create the perception of incompetence in his opponents. And so I will give him props for that. And I think he, he does it pretty well in this opening salvo. But uh, I think his opening statement's actually pretty good as well. But, uh, you know... Uh, May, probably not going to go over that. Chris Dates was more interesting because it's not a typical opening argument from Calvinists. There, there were new arguments. That doesn't mean they're good arguments, but there were novel arguments that are worth considering. All right. Uh, well, thanks for coming and thanks for hanging out uh, about yep. an hour and a half. And uh, I think it's a good time. All right. All right. Thank you, everyone, uh, for coming, and thank you, Pink Noise, for your comments. <laughs>